Hey, welcome to Season 1, Episode 2 of the Faith and Coffee Brewcast with Eric Letterman. Faith and Coffee is a blog and podcast about Christian faith and life in the everyday. I'm Eric Letterman, pastor at University Presbyterian Church in Tempe, Arizona. Whether you're driving, sitting and enjoying a cup of coffee, or doing whatever it is that you do, I am glad you're here. Hey, welcome to the Brewcast, everyone. I'm joined today by the Reverend Dr. J. Herbert Nelson, Stated Clerk of the Presbyterian Church USA General Assembly. Mr. Stated Clerk, welcome to the Faith and Coffee Brewcast. How do you like people to refer to you, Mr. Stated Clerk, Dr. Nelson, J. Herbert? Uh, J. Herbert's good. I appreciate being on the show as well. I know you're super busy, so I just want to thank you for taking the time to be here on the Brewcast. You've had quite a career. You've, you've grown up as a pastor's kid, a um, pastor. Your grandfather was a pastor, too. Is that right? Grandfather, four uncles, and uh, actually five uncles, and my father. Wow. So was it a foregone conclusion that you would become a pastor or how did that happen? Well, I, I think probably more than anything, I did not want to be a pastor because of uh, family heritage and history. And it wasn't so much because I thought it was something bad to do, but um, I wanted to try and walk in my own shoes. And uh, uh, it meant looking possibly at law uh, and actually went to college with that in mind. And um, ended up really uh, having a conversation with Dr. James Costin, the late Dr. James Costin, who was president, uh, well, at that time, uh, over Johnson C. Smith Seminary in Atlanta, Georgia. And uh, then uh, he became president of the Interdenominational Theological Center in Atlanta. And he, after I had an opportunity to do a prayer that morning at the baccalaureate service during graduation, uh, he asked me about an interest in coming to Atlanta and uh, uh, beginning there at the seminary. And um, I did, and honestly, I went to Atlanta for other reasons. Uh, it certainly wasn't about staying in the seminary. I uh, was looking to go to University of Illinois Carbondale to do uh, a degree at the time in city planning. So uh, that was this was going to be a deferred entrance. And I ended up going to a place called South Africa uh, during the time of apartheid, which was a part of my second semester there. And uh, as a young uh, student uh, looking at the ministry, that was a transformative part of my life. Uh, Six weeks in South Africa, uh, trying to figure out again what uh, the parallels of segregation in the United States, which I grew up under, and yet on this... uh, uh, in Africa, figuring out that, quite frankly, this was something not amazingly different, amazing not in a good way, but uh, something that how people could treat one another. And, uh, the treatment of persons who uh, were of African descent originally and also who were considered uh, through their race and the lens of race. So I was revisiting segregation all over again. And that pretty much led to my confirmation that this is the work that I wanted to do. Wow. Almost following in the steps of Mohandas Gandhi, he was uh, actually went to law school in, I think, uh, Oxford or somewhere in London and then ended up going to South Africa. And isn't that where he got his sense of, wait a minute, this is happening in India, too, just on a different in a different way? Absolutely. Absolutely. And having grown up uh, in segregated society in the United States, 
uh, South Africa was more of a reminder uh, that not just uh, in the United States, but globally, uh, the continuation of marginalization among people and the lack of opportunity, uh, and I should say equal access to opportunity, uh, and also uh, just looking uh, at the path and the journey that I had with a father who uh, led civil rights marches, three, four uncles who were uh, in ministry and all did the same. Uh, there was something about the family business that prepared me uh, for ministry that I was not even aware of until those moments where I really had to think theologically and also begin to think uh, what is the, the best way to treat other human beings and why are we not there and raising those kinds of questions in my mind. And then, so you served as a pastor for a number of years, and then you ended up at the PCUSA's Office of Public Witness um, in the what is affectionately referred to as the God Box, or at least it used to be, uh, the United Methodist Building, which is literally across the street from the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, what what led you into that position? Well, I, I think the grounding was pretty much uh, when I started out in ministry. My first call actually was uh, in. Greensboro, North Carolina, at St. James Presbyterian Church, which was a middle-class African-American congregation. Uh, it was probably uh, a significant move for a person my age coming out of seminary. Uh, I left college, went to seminary, and now was in a, what was understood to be a jewel of uh, African-American churches, uh, Presbyterian churches in our denomination, and um, stayed there for 12 years and left that based on a conviction to work with the poor. In fact, I began my protest work and uh, getting arrested and doing those kinds of things in North Carolina. Uh, but it gave me a vision of poverty and the systemic way in which people were being left behind, again, very much like South Africa. Um, and so apartheid in the United States and so uh, segregation had really not ended. And so uh, Greensboro, having been somewhat of a, significant place in American history and also in African-American history uh, with the sit-in movement beginning there. Um, and North Carolina A&T State University and Bennett College, uh, who were participants in that. Uh, it was a good opportunity to revisit a historical marker, but also to continually be reminded, even in that city, where we marched and were arrested for the issue of labor uh, disputes and a number of other things that took place there. Uh, that Again, the struggle had not ended. And so I made a commitment. A guy named Nelson Johnson, uh, Reverend Nelson Johnson, who a um, good friend of mine uh, had been in the Communist Workers' Party and gone through a shooting that took place uh, in Greensboro, but had now conformed or reformed, I should say, to becoming a Christian pastor. Um, he started a ministry with four people. And I knew at that time that there was something I needed to do. Uh, with regards to the engagement of the poor through a little bit of his tutelage. But also on the other side, uh, reaching back to South Africa, reaching back to segregation in South Carolina, reaching back to the struggles that people in communities went through, uh, joblessness and hopelessness, and that my dad had fasted uh, through a lot of that, um, that there was something yearning in my soul to really reach out uh, and to make connections with people who were impoverished. And so I left that a uh, significant church uh, with regards to the class system in the United States um, and also money and went to uh, uh, start a ministry in 
Memphis, Tennessee, that was designed to evangelize the poor to the Presbyterian Church USA, which sometimes felt like a mox, uh, oxymoron while I was there. Uh, but that was where I think I cut my teeth with the issues of justice uh, in some real significant ways and, in a sense, doing it uh, in a very different way than what my father did, uh, but one that I think joined him with regards to uh, the overall connection to poor people. And then you were elected, or you stood for, and was you were elected to the uh, position of State of Clerk of the General Assembly. How has that transition been for you? That that going from, I mean, you were still pretty much on the national stage at the office of um, uh, of public witness, but you, you were moved. I mean, that's the highest ecclesial position in the PCUSA. What's that been like for you? Well, I think the Office of Public Witness prepared me for this office in a lot of ways, but I think all of my experiences have, given where we are now politically in the United States. Um, I think, uh, to be very honest with you, uh, having an opportunity to be in Washington, D.C., and to see, I think, both the um, significant pieces of that and yet the pieces that are so distant from the people that I pastored, for example, in Greensboro, people who've been left behind and struggling. Um, and the way in which the money mill uh, in the uh, Congress and other places actually keeps us from being the nation we ought to be. Um, I was seeing similarly the same thing within the church, uh, a church that I love, a church that I grew up in, a church that my daddy and four or five uncles, four or five uncles actually spent in their ministry as Presbyterian pastors. And, uh, and that was that we had not let, you know, learned how to love people who were different. Uh, and I think institutionally, the struggle was the issue of LGBT inclusion that went on really from the beginning of the reunion, which I had an opportunity to be a part of uh, in 1983 uh, and to witness. And then to uh, now see from that period until uh, we finally had the uh, last fallout of the church, which I call it, um, the bitterness and the hatred of individuals with regards to the otherness of the other, as Hans Rudy Weber would say, um, there was something inherently wrong with the way by which we were appropriating faith on one end, and yet watching the way it was mimicked with regards to what we were trying to live into uh, that was happening in D.C. And I think that was the bridge uh, that helped me to even think through the possibility of leadership at the national level beyond Washington, D.C. and the Washington office for the Presbyterian Church. So um, it, it was a challenge, I, I think, in making a transition to that. But I think the transition was made a lot smoother by stopping in D.C. Um, yeah, in in the position that you're in as stated clerk, you, you've made some pretty sweeping changes, not only in the structure, but also it seems like in the culture of the Office of the General Assembly, how it functions. Uh, how it relates to the other councils and the other corporations uh, in the PCUSA. Can you share some about some of the changes? I mean, I, I look at General Assembly's past and since you've taken over, I, I don't think the bail bonds march in uh, St. Louis really could have happened like that, uh, or at least it didn't seem like things like that were happening previously. Can you talk some about those changes that you've made in as far as the focus of the church and how you see the church moving forward? You know, the church I grew up in, um, African-American pastors uh, uh, pushed the denomination uh, and what was the old United Presbyterian Church uh, 
to engage the Angela Davis situation and to really be about the business of helping to free her. Um, $10,000 was actually raised uh, and went into uh, a fund to help with her legal defense. Uh, the church really was in a sense of turmoil around that as it was uh, splitting. And this was back in the 1960s. For those who don't know, aren't familiar with the Angela Davis situation, can you give a little background just real quick? Yeah, uh, Angela Davis, of course, during the civil rights movement was being accused of a crime that she had not necessarily um, uh, actually committed. But it was a part of the continued movement with regards to African-Americans who were protesting. Um, actually, in a sense, and I use the word being framed for um, the protest work that they were doing. And she was one of them, one of many. Um, but I think what raised her profile was that she had claimed uh, in many ways to be a communist uh, and uh, worked with not the mainstream of the protest culture, which would have been the civil rights movement. Um, and was treated a lot differently with regards to how that worked out. And these pastors, uh, who many of them, like my father and others, who were a part of the work uh, of civil rights, uh, came together and they basically raised the money to get her out. And it was done through the National Church, the Presbyterian Church, uh, the United Presbyterian Church, which was headquartered in New York. A guy named Gayrod Wilmore, who died just a few days ago, quite frankly, was heading the office that helped to get the money for Angela Davis. And um, w one of the things that came out of that was the denomination protested. I mean, there were whites who really had a problem with that uh, and the giving of that money by the denomination. And African-American pastors, a little-known part of that story, went back to their congregations and raised the money, the $10,000, and gave it back to the denomination. So in a sense, um, that said, in essence, that the issues of empowerment, the issues of deep connection to what it means to be transformers of the world. But there's a kid in me uh, during that particular time, not knowing totally what was going on, but hearing that story over and over and over because it was a proud moment for African-American pastors who could not sleep in hotels, but had to sleep in one another's homes. So mother and my father uh, entertained a lot of them who were passing through South Carolina. And that story, those stories always came up. And when they did, um, it was an exciting part of what it meant to take the church to the streets, uh, to not have a general assembly where we try to love each other by just being nice when we really don't like each other sometimes. Uh, but instead to be in a relationship that takes us beyond our own struggles and our own dislikes and our own business and to take it to the places of the greatest uh, resistance to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's to the streets. And so when we went into St. Louis, um, thinking that we had the answer to what was taking place, the shooting of Michael Brown, the other shootings of African-Americans, uh, we got a lesson on something called bail bond. Um, and I'll be very honest with you, I had no idea what bail bond uh, had evolved uh, to be in this period of time. Um, I thought it was more like, and I'm saying this facetiously, but uh, I thought it was more uh, like Otis on uh, the Andy Griffith show who would go in and just take the key off and uh, open the cell and lay down. And uh, the next morning he 
he would uh, get up and leave after he slept off his drunk. I, you know, and I thought it was a pass through. It wasn't just anything. But to find out um, and being educated by that community that, quite frankly, uh, people are staying in jail sometimes for years before seeing a trial. Um, and because of that, uh, the issues around having a fair and speedy trial is really almost uh, uh, passed away. In fact, in many instances, they've done that across the United States. And it's all done because of the money mill that incarceration allows government officials and others to be able to profit from uh, by locking people up. And so places like Chicago, Cook County Jail, you misdemeanor uh, crime, uh, you end up sometimes sitting for five years on something like that. And those who can't pay bond can't get out. And so um, they, as they taught us, uh, we then joined them. And uh, in so doing, marched together in that street and $47,000 was raised by the denomination which was given over to a vetting agent to uh, be able to get others out of jail uh, during the course. So even now, the money in perpetuity is getting other persons out of jail. Um, we, I, I remember at that moment when you looked at the check, had you seen the check before you opened it in front of the jail? You know, I, I, I had the Because you had a big smile on your face all of a sudden. <laughs> I did. Uh, but it was hard for me. For a large degree, to wrap my my head around uh, giving forty seven thousand dollars, and not because I had a problem with the giving the money, uh, but I was really proud of our denomination going into a city uh, and really making a difference in a significant way. And even now, while we are not there, for persons who do have churches and uh, people in the community to know that we came to do something that was very different and. We brought it to the streets and we did not just sit in a meeting and argue over our own internal work um, and then leave the city no better than it was. And we discovered commerce, but we left as a partner with people on the ground. And secondly, we left educated about something that we had not known before. So we learned from that community. And thirdly, in solidarity, we spent some time freeing the captives. And so all of those things helped me to leave there uh, feeling good about it. And, I, and when I got the check, it was like it was a reality check that we really had done this. Um, and it didn't stop there. A person's left and in Virginia. The governor was signing legislation in cash bail. Uh, two Presbyterian pastors were standing there during the signing who had worked hard after they left St. Louis. Uh, Orlando, the Orlando area ended up getting the vet of uh, someone to do the betting, the same group that was betting in St. Louis to open an office in that area uh, because they went and, and brought the statistics and said, we actually are worse than St. Louis. And city officials did not even realize it, nor did the persons who they were talking to through the betting uh, process. And they opened an office there. And we are seeing this movement even now in Louisville, Kentucky, which um, a part of that with a community organization that, of course, preceded us in this, but working along with them. Uh, and the mayor to try and end the cash bail system in Louisville, where our headquarters is. Wow. So, I I mean, I, I know the PCOSA has been involved with civil rights and other things in the past, but I just, I hadn't seen that kind of an outward display for a, con for a denomination that is, what, 90-some-odd percent Caucasian, white, uh, to be able to step mm -hmm. into that space and say, "Yeah, we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna speak out against this," and and not everybody was in favor of it. Several hundred people—I don't know how many people were actually at that 
particular march or participated, but it was a, it was a good it was a good sized crowd. I remember taking pictures of it. Um, but it seems like in recent years we've been so inwardly focused on, for instance, LGBTQ, and it was mostly around ordination and marriage. It wasn't about it was about people within the denomination, let alone people outside the denomination that the fight seemed to be about. I haven't seen our denomination be that outwardly focused overtly. We do a lot of mission. We do a lot of good stuff out in our communities and around the world. I don't want to diminish that, but I hadn't seen it raised to that kind of a focus in a really long time. And it was surprising and uplifting for many of us, uh, for me at least. Um, and it, but it was something I don't think really happened under previous leadership. And not to diminish previous leadership, I, 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 we've had some really amazing state of clerks. You know, I, I think the major piece in this one is that um, we had to shift gears. Um, I, I will say this, and I'll say this at the risk of being totally misunderstood, but I think it was um, uh, the Presbyterian Church, when we came into reunion, uh, it made us the largest uh, uh, Protestant denomination in the United States of America. And I think both the Southern Church, as we frame those who were uh, from the South, but the reality is that Southern doesn't mean anything because I actually was in what would have been the Southern Church. I was in the Northern Church, rather. Uh, but I was in the South, living in South Carolina. <laughs> I grew up in South Carolina and pastored right, right. So it had more to do with, I think, ideology and how we understood the appropriation of faith. And um, I think the issues of justice were a part of that. And yet uh, another brand saying that we are not into those types of issues. Uh, and I think coming together, we fought each other. And, and the fights were over generally LGBT inclusion. Um, and, and I think we've spent time trying to push one another out. <laughs> and uh, over time, that happened. Uh, there were some that left. Uh, and there was certainly a split in the denomination. The question that I had to raise coming in uh, is what part of the ethos of my own understanding of faith, number one, uh, actually uh, makes sense uh, in this period. And I don't think that persons recognize fully. Uh, I was speaking not long ago, and I was in the South, and uh, individuals raised the question about, uh, well, reunion, be reunited, and all of these things have happened, and now we have a new church. And I had to remind folks that I was in a segregated uh, denomination uh, until 1993. Uh, that was when we finally drew the lines uh, that ended segregation in terms of uh, uh, all black governing bodies that was separated from white, uh, the rest of the white church. And I was a part of those all black governing bodies growing up. And I was a part of that in my pastoral years, beginning in 1986, 87, uh, 86 actually, and didn't get out of that until 1993. And so even though we talked about the liberal and the um, conservative church, the South being conservative, the Northern church being liberal, the reality is we both practice, <laughs> South and the North, practice segregation until 1993. So it really wasn't a difference with regards to the issues of where we were. What I think inherently... What happened, what happened in 1993? Well, 1993, they finally redrew the lines after we split. 
Um, and that brought uh, after oh, for the Presbyterians. That mean? brought the Presbyterians again. I was at a segregated Presbyterian ah. until 1993 uh, when those lines were finally drawn. Um, and that was segregation in the denomination. And I think, uh, you know, we, we talk about Southern Church, Northern Church, and that was where the split and the fight was. Uh, I think some of that is a manifestation of, of reality, but it was really uh, an agency of what and how uh, do whites even in the life of the church maintain power, uh, not just in the church, but, but how that is even uh, endemic in the life of society. And it happens in the South and the North. And I think the challenge that we have had right now in this denomination and, and that uh, we're continuing to try to press through um, and it's not just Presbyterian, it's Christian. Uh, is what does it mean in this period of history to recognize uh, that the uh, coloring of America, number one, and the biracial marriages that are taking place uh, and the other types of deep connections that are happening with the false construction of race in the United States actually is not going to prevail much longer. Um, and we have to begin to get in front of this as a church and help guide a society. I'm watching interracial couples. Uh, I'm watching individuals who come into this particular uh, part of the United States who may not speak English, uh, but who are educated in uh, deep connections of what it means to be a part of this United States society uh, and transformation that has to take place in their life. And many individuals who, when you look at them and you take the color construct historically, it doesn't even make sense. Uh, who's black? Who's brown? Who's yellow? I mean, the reality is that we are having to reckon with a phenomenon right now that is moving this whole race issue to another place where we have to end up. Uh, and we really don't have a choice about it if we are to be one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. And the immigrant piece of that is really creating, I think, the fastest shift in it that we are facing right now. Um, so I, I, these are the kinds of things that when we talk about uh, the denomination and all denominations, uh, how do we begin to make those kinds of shifts in this period of history? Uh, and that really means we have to almost not totally tear down, but we have to significantly realign how we appropriate our faith publicly and how internally we learn how to love one another in a way that we never have really loved one another uh, throughout our existence. And I think the, the march was a part of reaching out. I think inwardly, um, how we begin to turn this mechanism that also has meant power uh, into a place that becomes a palatable uh, a place where we all can become uh, one in the spirit and one in the Lord. And that's the challenge, I think, even of the larger society. Your, your vantage point, I mean, your vantage point of what's going on, what's happening in the church, the, you know, the, not just the Presbyterian church, but the, the big C church is, is pretty high up at this point. I mean, you're, you're communicating with religious leaders across the country, around the world. What is your sense of the state of the church, at least in the U.S.? And I know the church looks very different in different places around the world, especially in the Southern Hemisphere. What is your sense of the state of the church in the U.S. right now? And how do you see the PCUSA fitting into that? Where, where is the PCUSA in that? I think, I think Christendom, uh, the church as an institution, 
um, we are continually right now in a pattern of trying to find our way in a new landscape. Um, and I don't think anybody has the answer to that one right now. I think we are all experimenting uh, with what... I'm looking to you for the answers, Jay Herbert. I, I wish I Come had them. <laughs> don't leave me hanging. Don't leave me hanging. I need answers now. I, I think it'd be the seat of the gospel. Uh, the real answer is love. Um, but I would say, for example, in this period, uh, what makes love difficult uh, is that there are other institutional powers uh, that actually become stumbling blocks of definition for who we are uh, because of the close assignment and connection to it. I, I would, for example, say right now, and, and just at the risk of being totally misunderstood, the malaise that we're dealing with uh, with regards to this uh, 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 virus that we're dealing with is killing people. Uh, literally, the coronavirus is doing that. Um, and yet, when we begin to look at the power of money in this system, uh, and how it is being used from the presidency all the way down to corporate structures. Uh, people going back to work while folks are still dying. Uh, struggle, and, and even some folk who go to church that make these orders to go back to work, uh, who claim to be Christian, who claim to have a faith grounding, yet the faith is not reflective in how much we love our neighbor enough to say, stay in your house. Uh, take some family time. and. Let us try to figure out how to get you paid on the job that you were having before. And let us work through this in the abundance of what we have in a societal construct so that nobody really goes dying because they don't have enough, because there is enough. Um, so I, I, I want to circle back to that in just a mm -hmm. second. But I guess what are you imagining is the future of the church right now? I mean... What do you envision the church being in the next 10 or 15 years, let alone 20 years? I want to circle back to what you're talking about, because you just recently came out with a pretty strong statement um, against President Trump's and others' push to reopen the economy. And I want to come back to that. But right now, what do you imagine is that you, what, what will the church look like? What do you imagine the church looking like? Or where do you think we're headed? I think we're headed to a place where the acceptance of, uh, the, again, the otherness of the other, uh, is going to have to be the grounding upon which we approach this life that we're living um, and helping people to do the same. Uh, it is not going to necessarily be a construct of buildings. Um, I think our looking now at social media and what is happening with Zoom is changing us rapidly in terms of how we understand church and gathering. Uh, I've had to uh, deal with the issue of what does it mean to have communion in the life of our church? Uh, with regards to not being able to get physically together in a company and how can people have communion and can people have community, communion outside of our understanding that it is something we come to a place and share in that communion together. But what happens during a pandemic where we can't do that? We're going to now finding, I think, a generational culture, um, a, a younger generational culture that's pushing us to redefine what church means in relationship rather than an institution. And I think that's a difficult piece when we have been uh, building institutions over and over, bigger and bigger and bigger churches. The big steeple churches are the ones that we celebrate. Uh, 
I, I like to call them monuments to our egos, but yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and, you know, there's some good that comes out of that, but there's also a heavy institutional construct that prevents certain things from happening in order to hold that community together. And that sometimes can be antithetical to the gospel. Um, and it doesn't say that all small churches are, uh, are, are as holy as we think they might be either. But I think this, this particular period is calling us into some accountability to rethink what it means to be a part of the spirit that the church brings, not just the membership roles and the rosters and who are the big people who sit in our sanctuaries or who are the people we are attracting or whether we are growing or not growing. I think we are redefining uh, right now on the fly what it means to do the work of the church in the 21st century and to hold something together that is really fragile uh, and that calls us into a new space. I think we're headed in that direction full on. Uh, I don't think we're going to be going back to where we were. And that's not to say that there won't be institutions but the reality is that I think things are changing around us and within us without the institution having the control of what it's going to look like. Yeah, we can't really afford to go back because we can't even afford to maintain the buildings we have. I mean, I, I'm looking at my own congregation here in, in Arizona and we're, you know, we're looking at a you know, roof that needs repairs. We've got leaks in the sanctuary and we've got these buildings that were built for a, a congregation that everybody hoped for, mm -hmm. but was never realized, the size at least. Uh, and it was, uh, you know, we're a third of the congregation we were 20 years ago, at least a third, if not, if not lower than that. So I feel like those monuments, these buildings that we've created, these buildings in, in some sense, they're a great gift and they're a resource, but they've also become a great liability, like you say, and, and like and building literal walls between us and our communities and sometimes stopping us from being able to reach out. Do you, you know, is that kind of in your thinking as well? Or? It is. And, and I think one of the things that is going to be inherent in this new age for those who are willing to uh, really be, quote, progressive, and that's not used politically, but it's just saying willing to get ahead of things moving forward. and moving forward. I think the challenge is, then what do we do with that building? And it's not necessarily going to be a worship space. Uh, it's not necessarily going to be a fellowship hall that can seat 250 anymore. Uh, but can it be a place as a refuge for people in the life of the community uh, to be able to learn skills? Is it going to be a place by which we utilize those buildings as places of outreach? And we find ways of coming together uh, where there may be 10 churches in a, in a city and three or four of them are viable uh, within the denomination. Uh, could that be a place where all of those churches share in a joint type of ministry and work uh, and that become a part of the ongoing work that we are doing? Um, I think it's a time for creativity. I think it's a time for us opening our eyes and our minds to something deeper than just celebrating Jesus Christ for ourselves. And I think it's a time really to engage in communion, not just uh, communion with regards to the sacrament, but communion with one another across the boundaries that have been established in the societal construct. And, and there are ways by which we can do that and have fun. There are ways by which we can invite the community to be in a place of having fun and connecting with one another and learning things from one another in different communities and also being, uh, in a sense, activists uh, and people who are joining others in building safe communities. Um, 
And how do we utilize those buildings? And I think the immediate way that we think and have thought over the years is that once we ha- don't have a use for it uh, in the way that we'd like, then we sell the building. Um, and I'm saying now that the property that we have in the life of this denomination should be held for a purpose far greater than just our worship, uh, but ought to be a place where communities, because our churches were built in communities can actually resonate to the deeper expectations that the Lord has for them. So speaking of, of being creative and, and having fun, it was recently announced that the 224th General Assembly is definitely, that was supposed to happen in Baltimore, is definitely going online. Uh, how much fun are you having with that? <laughs> That's a major, major shift and change uh, for uh, our denomination. Uh, we're used to having the uh, what I call the big box hotels. Uh, downtown and very expensive big box absolutely yes. and inviting people to come over and be a part of our general assembly and paying the tab and doing a number of things in that regard um, I think we are going to learn something from this experience uh, and uh, going and using social media uh, using zoom and other types of uh, social media to really broadcast and to go beyond just our having a, uh, a general assembly, but inviting others in who may not have any connection with us at all to be a part of that assembly, um, which broadens, I think, one, our witness, and I think, secondly, broadens our appeal uh, to people to really come and join a band of people who love Jesus Christ. Uh, but I think the other part of it, Eric, more than anything, is I think it will liberate us as a denomination of some of the rigidity that we have, uh, some of the unwillingness to uh, cross boundaries uh, and to experiment with opportunities, new opportunities for uh, envisioning ministry and what it can be in the life of not only our communities, but how we can impact the world. And I think our mission work is grounded in a way of connecting to the world. Uh, and I think that yet this will also be a time by which we transform the way in which we work uh, in mission with others and bring people in as co-partners rather than uh, agents of our, I should say, uh, recipients of our mission. Um, I think these are the kinds of things that can happen because we are not sitting in all of the grandeur that we have been used to being a part of. But we are now having to gut it out like everybody else and figure out creative ways to do ministry. And some of that creativity that we model at the General Assembly will permeate our churches. But I have to also be very cognizant that this whole issue around a virtual General Assembly did not come from those of us at the General Assembly office. It actually came from people in the field, in local churches, who when they no longer could worship uh, because of what we are dealing with, this coronavirus, they went straight to social media and began preaching and teaching the gospel and doing the very things they did uh, before all of this took place. They refused to give up on the gospel because they did not have a building. Uh, I think and this, celebrating and they, communion and, virtually as well. Oh yeah, and they changed our mind on that one. I mean, we really but before before the state the official statement came out, going yeah yeah that's okay. That's exactly right. <laughs> We're all thinking, well, how else are we going to do this? We got to do this. So yeah, and it has put us in a position with some who have figured out that the gospel is not centered in the church. Um, we have people who literally, as Presbyterians uh, in Seattle, 
who were giving last rites on gurneys that were on the street while people were dying early on. And these were pastors in our denomination. And they pushed us to recognize that we were too insular in what we were doing. And I think this is the beautiful part about it, is that it's not necessarily me making the change, but it is being open as a denomination to the kind of transformation we need to do because the world has changed around us. And I hope that we will take that seriously, not just in this assembly, but in the days ahead and really rethink what will future uh, general assemblies look like when we gather. Uh, and how will that be appropriated as a part of really spacing ourselves out to connect with the broader uh, reaches of the world? And I think that's that's a great thing that has happened. Well, and, and that's been a criticism of the 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 center, the Presbyterian Center in Louisville. And, and I mean, we use that as a location, but it's also figurative for the leadership of the church. It's um, you know the, the criticism of the box of the of the in, in Louisville has been that there has been sort of this disconnect that there hasn't, there's been this rigidity, this, this insularness and many people in the churches are saying, Hey, they don't have any clue what's going on here. They don't have any idea what's going on in our church, in this congregation. And that's been a criticism for going back decades. Uh, you know, we, we were in, in the forties and fifties, we transitioned into more of a corporate model. And I guess that transition has been happening in the United States across many different organizations, but in the U S definitely the corporate model took over and it's sort of been this top down, even though technically we're not as Presbyterians, we are a denomination ruled by elders, but it has been very much sort of this top down mentality. And we needed the center. We needed the synods. We needed the Presbyterians to make the connections that the local church couldn't. And as the inner, Internet and communications began to get flattened. We could make connections ourselves and we didn't need anyone else to, to help us out with that. So how do you respond to the fact that people in the denomination have kind of been saying that the Presbyterian Center, the leadership, our national leadership has kind of been disconnected and insular for a long time? You know, I, I would think that some of that may be true and um, would have to really kind of give resonance to it that there were times when I felt the same way as a local pastor. And, uh, and, uh, but what I also have to say is that um, to totally say that without looking at the historic connection uh, of the work that is done internal uh, to and with churches uh, with regards to the work of the national church, uh, I, I think we've lost a sense of what it really means to be connectional. What does it mean to uh, really be able to rely upon various parts of the church to do work that other parts can't do? And some examples of that. Um, our world mission would not be taking place the way it is, and as significant as it is across the globe, uh, if it were not for the national church entities, which basically uh, commissions the missionaries, sends them outside of the country, takes care of them, and even in this time of coronavirus, uh, there was the mission agency that went outside of the country and brought all of them back home. Uh, and the same thing when there has been outbreak of war in the Sudan. Um, they did not leave the building until uh, that morning, about four o'clock in the morning, until the last person got out of Sudan a few years ago uh, when there was an uprising there. Um, they look out for the missionaries to go outside of the country and do the work. And it's the same thing even with local congregations. Um, I don't think 
congregations realize how much money it would cost for some of the legal cases that we're dealing with that come originally from congregations and then go up the ladder uh, to our presbyteries. And then uh, if it's not successful there, to our senates. Uh, and then ultimately, they end up on our desk. Uh, we had an overload of uh, legal cases, and this was the uh, organist being upset uh, about something that went wrong in the congregational setting, of pastors that were not uh, acting as they should, uh, with internal fights that had to be settled, which, if it had gone to the courtroom, would have cost those congregations a great deal of money. But because of the work that we do internally with those types of problems in the life of the denomination, um, basically, we are able to take care of those kinds of things, not so much financially, but the court cases, what would be equivalent to court cases, uh, is handled with our polity inside of our denomination, uh, where we have individuals who are on judicial committees that work with that kind of work. Um, I can go on and on uh, in terms of the help with seminary education, the ongoing work. And these are insular pieces that we are doing to support persons in the life of the church and congregations. Uh, and it's just been amazing to me over the last uh, 30 years or so and uh, or more when uh, we began to see the real erosion of what we know as the connectional church. And that is that no entity of the church is left alone by itself to have to deal with the issues that they are facing, that in our own communion, we have developed ways by which we can do that rather than selling people over to the secular world to take care of the problems internally. And so I, I really am concerned about the attitude of leadership that comes out of comments that we are not doing and not connected and we are not uh, supporting. Um, this is a great part of what we do and what our offices were set up for historically. And I will say that, you know, there have been flaws, uh, as there have been in everything else that takes place in the life of the church. We are not perfect people. Uh, but I think we have been faithful you know, with regards to the support of local congregations, of mid-councils, mid-council leaders, the training that we do, other types of pieces that we continually do in the work of trying to help folks to grow in the depth of faith, as well as to provide ministries for local communities, as well as uh, congregants uh, in our churches. And so, um, you know, I, I really think it's an unfair assessment, and I think it's an assessment oftentimes made by people who have not explored the depth of the work that we do in this connectional system and in the work that is done by the national headquarters that cannot be done in local congregations without paying extortions amount of monies uh, in order to get it done. In I just want to see, you know, one of the reasons why I started attending General Assemblies, one, because my polity professor in seminary, Kathy Runyon, who's up in San Francisco, <laughs> seminary, Presbytery, was my polity professor. And she said, you need to go to GA. And I started going and I never quit. And, and part of it is because I, that I feel that connection. I feel that connectionalism there. It's, it's you know, some people call it, you know, homecoming or, all you know. Uh, it, it's a it's a reunion of the, of the church, so to speak, when we come to General Assembly. But that does raise the question, and you mentioned the cost of putting on a General Assembly, and you mentioned the the value that we are discovering through social media because of the pandemic, and people are finding different ways of connecting. What do you say to the churches that are 
that that don't have those resources. They don't have the financial resources to, you know, send somebody to general assembly. They don't have, you know, just, or pastors who don't have the funds to be able to go because it's expensive. I mean, I, it costs me several couple thousand dollars to go to general assembly by the time all is said and done every, you know, whenever I go, I have it written into my contract. It's part of my con ed. Um, and, and that's how I've worked it out. I have vacation. I have two weeks of study leave and I also attend general assembly every other year. Um, and then I know you came out recently, and this this is related to what we were talking about before. You recently came out pretty strongly against President Trump's and others' push to reopen the economy over concern for people's health. Uh, so much of our health, though, wouldn't you say, is also based on the health of the economy. Some would suggest opening the economy and letting people get back to work is also a way of caring for people and allowing people to care for themselves because people are they're going on unemployment or they don't have the resources to pay their mortgage because unemployment only pays a percentage of your income. How do we weigh the need to control or limit the spread of a novel coronavirus that causes COVID-19 and the avoiding of, of sending uh, not just the U.S., but really the world into a very serious depression or possible financial collapse, which could affect even millions more than the coronavirus? especially in some of the most vulnerable economies around the world and even within our country. So some of the things that have been coming out, you know, connections to social media, general assembly and attending and participating, those are sort of spoken from a position of privilege, financial privilege, are they not? And how do you weigh the financial as well as the um, uh, spiritual as well as the physical health needs of people in the midst of all of that? That's a big question. I know. Sorry. Yeah, it's okay. I, I, I think you weigh it with the, what the scriptures tell us. So we have a life uh, to have life and have it more abundantly. Um, I don't think you can live an abundant life. If you're dead, uh, you can live a life after, but I don't think that you're going to have one. Uh, but couldn't the financial cost, uh, couldn't the financial collapse, potential financial collapse cause even more death and destruction? Well, I think we... I'm not have, advocating for either. I'm just sort of playing right. devil's advocate here, so to speak. And I think that's a part of the complexity of our own theology is that we advocate for life. Uh, and we advocate for that on different levels uh, and how people understand and interpret that piece. I'm one, however, that... And I, I can only speak out of my own context and my own faith in this one. Um, I do think, as I said earlier, it borders on insanity to tell people to go back to work to look at pictures of people in Jacksonville, uh, in the ocean, swimming, uh, and looking at persons going back to tattoo parlors and barbershops, and uh, as those are pretty much the industries that are being open up, opening up on the ground. Uh, and telling people, go back to work, go back to work, in the midst of people who are dying on the streets in our cities. I was in a place called New York City, I preached uh, there and uh, the very next day, yeah, the, the very next day, um, it was interesting. Before I left, the first person died of the COVID virus that day. Wow. Um, I was, you know, and now I've seen from that one person being in DC, and when I say not seen the person, but been there when that happened and the announcement of it, to now the calamitous madness that's going on in DC. I mean, in uh, uh, New York. I have to stop for a minute and wonder, um, when you tell people to go back to work, uh, does that really make sense in this kind of construct? Um, yeah, 
to give people money and stimulus money, uh, personal stimulus money to help move themselves into a different direction um, who are not working. And I mean, we're seeing that. I think it's a good thing. But on the other end of it, uh, to expect people to go into barbershops when we have seen um, uh, Korea opening up too fast and now they're back in the same dilemma and losing lives all over again. And to risk that uh, in the name of money, uh, money that you can't spend if you die. We're talking about life and death. And I think sometimes uh, my trouble has been with the uh, president has been that I think there's been a great deal of emphasis on getting back to work for money without having some real discussions about the issues uh, of what it means to be safe in life and death. I've seen the contradictions that he has had uh, with regards to uh, the person who has been dealing with three pandemics uh, for three presidents over the years uh, and who is known as an expert in this particular area. Um, I just think that somehow or another caring for people, and that's what I do. That's the work I've always done with regards to my faith. Um, that that is more important. Uh, yes, than going back to work, knowing that you're taking the risk of dying each and every day. Uh, and I think that's what do we encourage? I think is the question at the basis of all of this. Do we encourage life? Uh, and, and to take care of oneself, to stay inside, to take the precautions you've been asked to do? Or do you tell your children to go out in the yard, just run around and play and, and, and have fun like you've been here? Because I know you're tired of being locked up in the house. There is something inherently wrong when that kind of option is taken in the midst of people dying all around. And I, I, I just think it's bad advice. Um, and I think it's antithetical to the culture of faith. So I, I, I would definitely agree. I don't think this is the time to you know, my congregation's even asking the question, when do we get back to normal? And it's like, I, you know, I don't know Have you checked your crystal ball. I haven't checked mine. I don't have one. So if you have one, that'd be great. You know, let us know <laughs> when this is going to end. But listening to the medical professionals, they're talking about this could go on for months. This could go into the fall. Dr. Fauci is already saying, hey, we're going to probably have a resurgence that's going to be a lot worse come fall. And, you know, we're not going to have a vaccine for at least, you know, 12 to 24 months, depending on how fast this goes. Uh, that, that the research goes, at what point does the, the, the physical health outweigh the economic health of the economy? And I'm not talking about, and, and I know the president likes to focus on, you know, the, the economy for the economy's sake, for making money and profit. But I'm look, when I talk to the, about the economy, I'm talking about the people that are working at Walmart and barely making ends meet, and they're working paycheck to paycheck, or they're already behind in payments. They haven't paid their rent in three months because they're trying to pay their medical or their or their uh, you know, electric bill, and they're trying to get caught up in what they can. Those are the folks that I'm worried about, the folks that maybe don't even have the access to be able to go and apply for unemployment, or they didn't even have the awareness to go and do that. Or if they do, it's such a small percentage that they can bar still barely put food on the table. And, and even then, you go to the grocery store, and the, you know, the, the, the shelves are still empty. I mean, we, can't, we still can't get toilet paper. I mean, <laughs> how, how, do we, how do we balance this stuff? Um, you know, and uh, you know, not everybody can afford to put a bidet in, you know, it's just <laughs> bidets evident bidet prices are going up because people are buying them and installing them in their house now, which I thought was weird. Um, I mean, not the bidet, but the fact that people are doing that, but again, that speaks to the privilege that people who have are able to weather this storm a lot better than the people do, who don't have. And how do we weigh those costs of, yeah, let's not get people sick, but also 
let's how do we prevent people from dying of starvation you know i think that's been the ongoing question or lack of health care for other things besides and i think that's been the ongoing question in the united states since its very beginning um, and since we set up this class system and since we dealt with the issues of indentured servitude and uh, slavery and all of the other kinds of ways of marginalization, Jim Crowism. Um, I think this is what we as a nation have always had to wrestle with. But I don't think, quite frankly, that we have all been in the business of trying to wrestle with this question. There is a way. There is a way. Uh, money, let's just be honest, money is not made by God. Money is made by people. And people distribute money. And so the wealth in the United States has been about a distribution problem, especially when you have wealth over poverty. It's been about an access problem. It's been about a lot of things that have led up to where we are right now. Uh, and so we are facing the consequences of what it has been to have ongoing inequality, to have people who are marginalized by systemic evil. And now we're finding the nation in a crisis that is not just impacting them, but others. What I'm struggling with in this process is those who have made money over, uh, with the government. Uh, I, I'm just reading just yesterday uh, a struggle with uh, a major corporation being given millions of dollars by the president uh, to the point where the embarrassment of the news media finding out about it, uh, and it's a milkshake place or some kind of uh, uh, I can't remember the name of it, but it's uh, at the embarrassment, they try to figure out a way. Uh, well, actually, they didn't figure out a way. They gave the money back. Yeah, I read about that. Um, and, yeah, and, and I'm suggesting that it was the mindset of that in the first place that creates the greater problem. We want to get businesses back in order. Well, you made a priority of business, but you're not making a priority of people. And so this has a lot to do with how our leadership thinks. Um, and, and these things don't happen. Rich wealth and poverty don't happen um, without some kind of catalyst to suggest that there are some who are better than others. And we have known this as racial identity and the life as done by racial identity and the life of this country. And it continues. Uh, the wealthy get wealthier, the poor get poorer. And we are seeing that even now. You all go to the beach and jump in the water. Uh, so let's open the tattoo shops and the barber shops, all of the places, in a sense, where many poor people find themselves. And yet on the other side of that, uh, we shut down whole blocks of people who don't have to worry about any of those kinds of things to get back to work. Mm. And so we continue to perpetuate the very classism that you're talking about and people being left behind and people dying to go to places like barber shops and other places to refuel the economy. While people who don't have that worry uh, are able to stay home and get $10 million checks uh, from the government. <laughs> it, is, it is just unbelievable how we perpetuate it. And that's really what I'm struggling with when I say that it borders on insanity to tell the poorest people in the United States of America, go back to work. Uh, and then again, pay off the other folks uh, who are making money up and down off of stocks and everything else that don't have to show up a day at work or either to run anything. Uh, and then we sit back and, and make excuses about, uh, uh, you know, we need to get these places back over. It, it really is a contradiction to life itself. And I think that's the challenge that I have. Well, and it harkens back to the, those are the disposable people. Absolutely. 
and it continues. The people who stay at home are the important people, and as long as they're making money, we're okay. We can dispose of the 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 unskilled, and that's okay. That's what they're there for. And we'll make the we make our money off the back support people. And I think again, yeah, that's the challenge of how we overcome that. And the church has to be a place to speak against that kind of economic atrocity. Um, and, you know, I've, I've been blessed, and many of us in the Presbyterian Center and our congregations and other places have been blessed uh, to not have to uh, go to work. And when I say not go to work, we're still working, but to work from home and to uh, do a lot of what I'm doing from home. Uh, but the reality is that there are sectors of people out there who will never have that opportunity unless we reverse the cycle of opportunity and lack of opportunity in the United States of America. We start people off, our children, uh, who are not in school either, another problem, yeah. um, who are being asked to do work online. And we have children who don't have any computers in their home at all. Yeah, in Arizona, they said something like 40 or 50% of our students don't have access to in- internet. And even if you give them a computer, they still can't do the work. Absolutely. That's being asked of them, yeah. And, and I think those are the kinds of challenges that when I say it is insanity for somebody to go back to make three or four dollars an hour, and it may be more than that, but at a place like McDonald's um, and to risk your life and your family's life for that. I understand the, inter- the, the uh, alternatives are not that great. Um, and uh, oftentimes they lead to other things. I, I know that's what the record has been. But there has to be a demand on this government uh, to take care of all of its people and and not just those who are wealthy. Uh, And I think the greatest example of what we do when uh, the rich get richer and the poor get poorer uh, has been the parade of CEOs that are going through the White House right now and making all the pledges and promises, but yet not promising anything to the poor. Uh, There's something wrong with that and inherently wrong with it in this nation. And it's insanity for us to tell people to go back to work. Uh, under those kinds of conditions. And it's interesting that we have, every time we've had one of them, uh, those presidents that catered to those folks, we end up in recession shortly after that. I, I, I'm just noticing that pattern over the last 50 years. And it's because the money goes to the wealthy. It goes to their friends. It goes to folks who put them in office. It goes to these multi-million dollars. No, let me back up. These multi-billion dollar campaigns. And we're about to see another one come up for president of the United States. Uh, they have to pay the people back for that. I learned that in D.C. And and yet we are being deregulated all across the board with regards to our rights, Citizens United and a number of other things that are taking place. This, this, this playing field in the United States is not set for everyone, quite frankly, to prosper. In fact, it's not set for the majority to do it. And there has to be some real ongoing change in the United States of America for us to really talk about what it means to develop equality and be and have a place in the United States where it makes sense for us uh, to sacrifice for a country. I, I think that's the deepened part of where we have to be in this campaign in which we're going into right now. Jay Herbert, you have been incredibly generous with your time tonight. For those listening, we've had some pretty major technical difficulties tonight uh, and you have stuck through it and I appreciate your persistence and your willingness to, uh, to, to move forward. So thank you so much for coming on the Brewcast and for, uh, and for your leadership. Uh, there's a lot of us out here that really appreciate uh, the things that you do and it does, it's not even about agree or disagree. It's about the fact that we appreciate 
the, the, the example of faithfulness that you're setting for the church and, and, and helping us discover and your willingness to listen. It's been a, it's been a blessing. You've been a blessing to the church and we're very thankful for that. Eric, I appreciate being on the broadcast and um, continue to do the work. I think this is helpful to all of us to have a chance to really be able to uh, hear uh, on a vehicle that I am convinced right now. And that is through podcasts and through uh, a number of other pieces that we're doing, Facebook and unique uh, ways by which we can begin to communicate uh, offline and some subs- and some uh, subjects that really, really need to be talked about and also where we need to organize. And so thank you for having me. You and I will keep, keep on doing the work because that's what we do. Absolutely. All right. Amen to that. <laughs> the opinions expressed in this episode do not and are not intended to represent the opinions or official positions of any of the organizations with which I, Eric Letterman, am associated. The Faith and Coffee Brewcast is a podcast about Christian faith and life in the everyday. Check out the Faith and Coffee Brewcast at brewcast.faithandcoffee.com or on iTunes. And be sure to subscribe. You can also subscribe to the Faith and Coffee blog at faithandcoffee.com. You can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash faithandcoffee. Be sure to click on that like button. It helps us improve our reach and our standing. Faith and Coffee is produced by Bad Coffee Productions, LLC in Chandler, Arizona. I look forward to talking with you again. I'm Eric Letterman. Thanks for listening. And remember, be of good courage and know that you are loved.